Those are the foundations that brought us the dollar standard, right? So we are literally reversing those. So I don't see, that's why I'm a bit more skeptical of those who are saying, oh, no, no, the dollar's never gonna, like, you know, this is all rubbish about the decline of the dollar. Um, I don't think it's the decline of the dollar per se within America or whatever, but on the international trading circuit, I do think we're going to a multipolar world. That's not to say the yuan or the ruble or Bitcoin's going to be better than the dollar. I just think we lose that neutral clearing point altogether. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. A new world order is becoming clearer by the day, and in our global macro series, I, along with my co-host, Jim Kassang, want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us try and better understand what the new global macro-driven world will look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work in places that others may have missed. And we want to share our journey with you. Our guest today is one of the most respected journalists in the financial media who focuses on stories being missed by the wider journalistic pack. So please enjoy our conversation with the former editor of the award-winning Financial Times Alphaville blog and now founder and editor of The Blind Spot, Isabella Kaminska. Izzy, welcome and thank you so much for joining Gemini today for what I'm sure will be a fantastic conversation as part of our global macro series. How are you doing? It must be a busy time for you at the moment. I'm doing really well. Thank you very much. And yes, it's been really busy. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Now, right now, we're witnessing some significant shifts around the world, not just in terms of policies and events, but also how they're being reported to us. So we could not be more excited than to have you on the show because of your background within the media space, but also because of the shift that you've made recently in order to get a bit more kind of journalistic freedom, if I can phrase it like that. So uh, let's just dive in. And since it's the first time you've been on our podcast, perhaps I could ask you just to set the stage and provide a little bit of context for our conversation by maybe sharing some of the highlights from your journey so far and what got you into journalism and your time at the Financial Times, of course, and what led you to go independent uh, and start The Blind Spot. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Um, it's really a pleasure. Um, my journalistic um, career started many moons ago uh, in 2001. In fact, I did a journalism master's at a now defunct, uh, well, it's not defunct, it's part of the London Institute now. It was then the London College of Printing. 
And then from then I from there I went to work at Reuters, at CNBC, at Platts. I've um, been sort of very much market focused in my time. I also did a, a bunch of independent uh, journalism in the former Soviet republics um, back in the day. And then I ended up at the Financial Times in 2008 um, on Alphaville, which was the award-winning bl financial blog there. Um, I became editor there in 2017, and I left just a few months ago, actually. Um, and now I'm heading up The Blind Spot, which is my own uh, independent venture, currently a one-woman job with a few freelancer help uh, helpers here and there. But I'm hoping to expand shortly, and the idea really is to leverage uh, the uh, ability to be independent in a way that I think is, you know, back in the day, Alphaville was very, um, uh, I would say, uh, create both creative and adventurous in its coverage. Um, and that in just through the nature of bureaucratization and professionalization, that becomes more and more difficult when you, you know, as a brand gets established. So the sort of cutting edge stuff we were doing, it, it became a bit harder to do that stuff at the FT. Um, as the rest of the newspaper caught up with the digital sort of phenomenon. Um, so now, you know, back when back when we were starting out, no one really was on Twitter, believe it or not. Um, there was there was a blogosphere, but everything was fairly amateur. So we were able to operate quite quickly and loosely. But as the rest of the media professionalized, there were higher standards, I think, um, expected. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I want to lower the standards, but I, it's more that sort of community-based feeling fell away because it was became a much slicker operation, so to speak. Um, and with the blind spot, I want to get back to that sort of early days feel where it's community-led, and I'm very interested in expanding in, in, in what I would call sort of financial OSINT or open source intelligence as well, which I think you have to really do in an independent way. It's harder to do that at a major corporation. So that's the that's the the short and tall of it, the long and tall of it, <laughs> whatever you want to say. Um, but um, yes, that's about it. Absolutely. That's just fantastic. Jim, why don't you kick it off today with some of your uh, thoughts and, and, and topics you want to dive into? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for joining us, Isabella. Um, big fan of your work. Uh, really refreshing to hear. Uh, you know your independent view. Um, have been a follow of your blog for a while. Um, you you capture a lot of stories that are being missed, kind of by the the wider journalistic kind of pack, if you will. Um, I'd love to start at thirty thousand feet and kind of talk big picture before we kind of zoom in. Um, a recent blog post uh, you you wrote about uh, mentioned kind of this view of, uh, you know, history as long as, as old as time, if you will, of uh, anacyclosis, right? And that democracy is potentially at this point where it's descending into, you know, mob rule, right? I love to hear your thoughts about kind of the history, uh, what the Fed Fed's role has been in this, um, and where do you see us uh, kind of in the West, uh, you know, autocracy versus democracy right now? So, I mean... I'm so glad you picked up on my anacyclosis craze. Um, I've 
been a fan of the theory for many, many years. I did ancient history um, at UCL as my undergraduate, and that's where I really first came across the theory. I just thought it was fabulously um, elegant in many ways, and the cyclicality of it, you know, for those who don't know, the basic idea is that power corrupts and all forms of government are susceptible to these corruption forces, and whether it's a monarchy, an oligarchy, or even a, a democracy, over time, um, the forces of corruption turn um, a good example of, say, all of the three into a bad one. You know, it's it's the archetype you see in Star Wars or Game of Thrones. You know, so that's the percept. That's 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 the neat summary of the of the theory. Um, where we are now, I think there is. Um, you know, I, I was commenting today in a piece I just put out in my wrap that um, I think there's a real. Um, schism in, in, in the kind of commentariat space in general with respect to whether we are as a civilization, as sort of Western civilization teetering on the brink of uh, collapse. I think there is um, there are those who definitely think that there is there are forces of of malaise and and um, I guess, you know, risk coming in in such ways that the stability we've been so you know used to is is under threat and then there are those i think who th who who when people discuss this are sort of saying well the problem isn't democracy the problem is all these other things blah 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 whereas i do sense that that is one of the problems is that just proposing the idea that democracy itself might be under threat because of um the the system itself having become maybe corrupted is a controversial point in and of itself. Um, and it's all very well sort of saying, well, we live in a democracy, blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't really cut it in my uh, from my perspective, because the kind of the checks and balances that have been put into the system aren't enough anymore to prevent certain sort of powers um, dominating in ways that are undermining specifically the middle classes i would say and historically it's it's only a thriving middle class that allows for a um for a good form of democracy so with once you remove that that sort of thriving mi middle class from the equation it's very hard to retrace to a healthy democracy and are we teetering back towards government influence over central banks? I think possibly yes. Um, that's really the question on my mind, I think, with central banks, is how independent are they these days? Yeah, I find it very interesting. I've, I've actually pulled on a few of these threads myself, and um, I, I couldn't agree with you more that, you know, the Federal Reserve ultimately has taken, has made it easy for government, right? Uh, they've been solving a lot of problems along the way. Um, which has relieved the pressure on government uh, to build to a much bigger uh, level. Um, and I think government is now, with COVID and several other pressures, really uh, taking the mantle. Um, on the vol you know, I'm a volatility manager, actually, by training. Um, and we think a lot about and talk a lot about the mathematical kind of um, distributions uh, of, of events, right? Um, I've talked a lot about leptocurtic um, distributions lately. And... You know, what that is, is fat tails. Um, essentially, uh, I, my analogy I like to think about, I like to hear your thoughts is, you know, there is a building potential energy within a constrained system that's been happening for a while, right? But that doesn't mean the leverage or the, the risks haven't been building, right? 
Um, the, the question is, you know, when do the constraints, which have been, in my view, the Fed and liquidity broadly, when do they when they get removed? Uh, that potential energy is is has been there all along, but people haven't really been thinking about it. And, um, and I think you talk a lot about that in some of your blogs about how people in finance, in particular, are um, have been thinking everything's normal. There's nothing that's changed in this world, but certain forces have been building for a while, um, and the world is still a dangerous world out there. The energy is actually bigger than ever. Love to hear your thoughts. Uh, I would agree with that, and I think um, there is still this battle between those who perceive risk as fundamentally reducible and those who see it as transferable only, right? Um, I think those are the two two clashes um, in the market in terms of um, how to deal with these things. And um, I believe definitely the risk situation is, from my perspective, one where we're only transferring um, these pressures and over time, people belatedly realize this, um, but they're always caught out because of this sort of, when you're in the group think, you don't realize you're in the group thing. And being one of the problems is the group thing, which emerges from from the solutions that we, you know, we, we create solutions, aka like, well, for example, the 2008 crisis came along, we created all these regulations, we, we um, you know, supposedly um, stabilized the system, made it stronger. And now we're sitting there in a sort of, we're fairly complacent about that. But have we inadvertently transferred that risk elsewhere and into different forms? Um, we won't know because until until the bubble bursts within those new risk zones, um, it will be hard to, you know, people in the bubble don't realize that they are taking undue risk. That's the whole point of the bubble, right? If you know what it is, you're not, <laughs> it's not going to be a bubble. Um, so that's what, that, that's one of the, you know, that's why with the blind spot, I'm always trying to look beyond what the consensus is saying and that makes me a natural contrarian but i do think that's the only way you can um hedge against some of these unexpected sort of future fallouts is is you really have to stress test not just the conventional risks but the new new risks coming from all sorts of different areas and my hunch right now is that this is you know we're we're stepping into a, a schismatic world where um, you know it's going to be multipolar from now on, and there is a perception, I think, that um, we, the kind of the West, can maintain our supremacy within that world, or at least maintain a healthy kind of financial structure. And I'm I'm not sure that that is a wise perspective because I think the uh, era of the kind of so much of the wealth that we've produced, you know, in in the last 10, well, 30 years or so, like the whole period of globalization, um, like intensive globalization, I don't think uh, we can um, simply go to a multipolar world and not suffer a regression, um, which will impact the stability of the financial system itself. That's my hunch, um, whether it plays out that way, I, I, you know, I guess we will only see. I want to try and go in a slightly different direction. As I mentioned, there are so many directions we can go with you. And I um, 
I'd like to try and I get this feeling that your sources and the things you're going to be writing about on the blind spot is, of course, um, different to what the mainstream media has been reporting. So I do, I would like because I think for me at least, a lot of the challenges that we see play out now, although they have been building up for a while, for me they became very clear during COVID. COVID for me is something that is kind of a starting point in some ways of kind of stripping out some of the um, the bubble like that we that we are seeing now and I would like to try and go back and ask you now now that we have kind of have covid behind us to some extent we're not so emotionally involved in it I would like to hear your kind of analysis of where we are in that and and what it's meant and we can go from you know biosecurity biowarfare we can go to Wuhan we can go to Bobby Malone and censorship. I would like to actually also hear whether you've come across uh, Robert Kennedy's latest book. Um, I mean, there are so many things uh, I'd love to to dig into. So feel free to start where you want and and give us your uh, analysis of the situation. Yeah, I do think. Uh, I mean, for me, COVID um, was definitely a turning point uh, in terms of how I see the world. I you know, I've been on a journey myself and I go through periods of optimism and periods of pessimism. I tend to be pessimistic when everyone else is optimistic and vice versa. Um, and with COVID, my personal journey was that I was incredibly um, fearful um, in January and February when the in original news was coming out. This is, you know, typical me is that everyone else was dismissing it at that point And I was like, no, this is huge. This is going to be a really big thing. And I was the the overreacting one. I was buying all the masks and, you know, all the goggles. I was I was preparing for like, you know, a nightmare. But then um as the kind of system picked up with my mentality, <laughs> um, I talked myself off that cliff, right? And um and I started to realize that um so much of my fear was based on social media and I'm not saying there's nothing to be fearful of. I had COVID myself. I I think it's a serious disease. It's obviously, you know, a major issue. Don't get me wrong. But I do think that what, you know, what made me sort of second guess myself was the way we just collectively decided to take the lockdown policy and not really review it or analyze it. And that challenging or questioning it became taboo almost overnight and i i found that very hard to um digest and i i especially found it difficult to um understand where my colleagues were coming from because as journalists i thought it was our job to question things um, and the kind of near universal compliance with the policy um, completely confounded me. And um, I, as, as the natural contrarian, I just felt I had to continuously question this. And I always thought that we would be kicking the can down the road. And I think to some degree, I've that view has been vindicated when you look at Australia and you look at sort of the zero COVID nations and you see that they haven't really uh, withstood, you know, the impact. And obviously now you see Shanghai, you see what's going on in China and, and you realize that this lockdown policy wasn't um, necessarily, I mean, it was always in my mind completely mad. Um, I, it seemed inevitable that we would have to like 
face the consequences of, of the virus itself. Now, that's not to say we weren't to do anything. And I, I guess I am open to the idea that we bought some time in, ter in terms of developing treatments and in terms of um, doing, you know, better protocols and all that. So I can just about get on board the idea of the first lockdown, but I still favoured the Swedish approach. And I still, I didn't like the sort of, um, the, the kind of nanny state mentality that, that that completely eliminated personal choice from the equation. I like to think of the citizenry as being able to decide, you know, what they can handle in terms of risk themselves. And I think the scandals that we're now seeing with everything from Boris Johnson's party gate to, you know, there's so much, there was so much hypocrisy amongst the the people setting these laws, which just shows that the rules themselves were really not, in, you know, they were impossible to follow. <laughs> um, so it's so much of it was theatre. And what the other thing that gr grates me now is that in terms of like figures, in terms of death figures, at least, perhaps not in terms of the compared to the early kind of 2020 period, but certainly compared to the other intensive lockdown periods we've had, you know, the new waves are still going. COVID is still a thing, but somehow we've just completely um, switched into this mentality that it doesn't matter. And that to me proves how much of a media phenomenon and how much of a kind of collective fear, brainwashing situation, um, you know, it was. The fact that you can just, I mean, obviously there are still the fearful out there, but like by and large, society's just decided to move on now and it doesn't care. Um, and um, I find that quite fascinating. And it just proves to me that sort of groupthink, um, that is exactly the same sort of thing you see in financial markets. It's the same groupthink phenomenon. That's what's dangerous, I think, and and it's this. It's it, we have not been swept up in that sort of massive way, really, since since Second World War. Uh, you know, the last time that many people were encouraged to do something that was ultimately self sabotaging, in my opinion, was you know the Germans during the Second World War, um, and that might seem quite an extreme thing to say but i think it was this it was it was similar forces these forces of you think you're doing something that is in your tribe considered to be the right thing um and you don't question it because it's so not it's so part of the peer um you know the conformed con, you know the conformed view is is that this is the right thing to do um, yeah, I mean that's that's quite quite a lot of <laughs> rambling well, the, from no, me. No, I mean but, um, sure, and and there maybe there are some specifics that I'd like to dive into a little bit. But just when you say this thing about being asked to do something that um, you, you're kind of being just told to do, I mean, frankly, it seems like that's a little bit what's happening with these frankly, poor Russian soldiers who are being sent to an exercise, a training exercise, not knowing they're going to war. I mean, we can think of the war what we want, and I, I think we all fall on the side of the Ukraine, but we have to distinguish between the regime, the Putin regime, and the Russian people, because they're not the same thing, uh, in my opinion. But there are some there are some crossovers, I think, and, and I'd love to, I don't know if you have um, I have. A, I don't know. I have this feeling that you have some great uh, uh, intelligence and sources that we don't know of, so to speak. But there are some overlaps because, for example, things like the uh, the the COVID and the biolabs. Right now, we're hearing uh, at least Russia saying, "Well, actually, the U.S. were having biolabs in Ukraine. That's one of the reasons why they went in." We have uh, Hunter Biden's laptop, which is being exposed, where there seems to be kind of evidence of that. What are you hearing on topics? 
like that, and how do you think it it plays into to uh, to all of this? Um... Well, I think um, there are a lot of parallels in that um, it's the you know <laughs> again it's this sort of collective um, you know mentality that is um, a group format like some sort of group formation where we can't really. Um, question what the what the consensus is because if you do so you're seen as some sort of traitor or saboteur and you're gonna undermine your undermine your tribe so to speak um so that's the obvious parallel in terms of like the biolabs um I, again i i find it fascinating how um how what seem to me quite logical questions are seen as taboo and how the media complex constrains any questioning um that challenges the sort of established narrative and i've i've kind of come up with a theory about that which i would call the kind of media segmentation theory but um but before i explain that i'll just say that the same exact exact thing kind of happened with the lab leak theory um with wuhan which was the any questioning that it might not be natural origin was like it just wasn't allowed. Like nobody even raised it. When I um, brought it up internally at the FT, you know, I was one of few people pushing for it. And I felt, I don't know, because I wasn't privy to all the conversations, right? But I felt very much that when I had those conversations with senior editors, no one, I got the impression no one else was pushing for it because of this fear that they might be deemed a conspiracy theorist. And I wasn't, you know... <laughs> I, I'm very confused these days as to what is the difference between a journalist and a conspiracy theorist because, you know, my job as a, as a journalist is to question things and to question and find evidence. Obviously, it's not to just make random, you know, connections without any evidence. That's not what we're doing. But I don't think that's what we were doing with, with the lab leak uh, theory. We were, you know, as I as I explained to the editors, I, I felt there was a really important investigation to be done, whether it was to debunk the um, idea that it was a lab leak uh, or whether it was to confirm or to keep the idea open. It didn't really matter. The point was that there was enough evidence or enough circumstantial evidence to merit an investigation. And yet everybody was shying away from it. And once... And what's really interesting about these sort of um, groupthink phenomenon uh, phenomena uh, is that once the tide turns, once it becomes, once the Overton window like expands and allows for this taboo topic to be talked about, well, then it's all in and everybody goes for it and it's fine. And we almost forget that it was taboo to talk about it just six months ago. Yeah, and the other point was, um, you know, why why is this happening? And my theory is that the social media landscape has changed the way we communicate um, controversial or not controversial, but like s sensitive information these days. Um, the old media model, we had a free press in the West, of course, but it was always segmented, which meant that the news targeted different sort of demographics and it packaged the news in very different ways. And it would, you know, like the tabloid press would, if it was to break controversial stories, it would still, you know, put them in a way that was understandable and people would go on the journey relative to their demographic sort of cliche, right? And this is why the, you know, 
financial press got a reputation for being the like truly kind of truth speaking one because the financial press was seen as ambivalent to the politics of everything because business people just want to make money, right? And so business people can't afford to be biased. Um, they have to be dispassionate about all these things. They just need to go where the money is going to be made. And this allowed for the financial press to sort of be very matter of fact about things that say the more uh, popular press might uh, not be able to get a, get away with saying without causing a massive like hoo-ha or, or a, you know, some sort of storm. Um, but with the internet and with social media especially, that segmentation has broken down. And so even the financial press has to think about the possibility that their, their true, you know, it, I'm not saying they're not writing um, what they consider to be the truth, but they have to think about how it might be received by the lowest common de denominator. And I don't mean that in a in a pejorative sense. I mean it in the in the sense of like the least informed um, demographic that doesn't necessarily follow the topic in hand. And that could be, you know, the lowest common. Like for me, <laughs> if if there's some news about I don't know music blah blah blah. i'm the lowest common common denominator in that so because i wouldn't know what's going on in the world of music so so what i'm just trying to to neutralize um uh, what i'm saying there is that in terms of you know who the knowledge base of of the recipient right and as a result everyone has to kind of walk around on eggshells and and create content that um that has to be very, very careful in case it's taken the wrong way by people who don't have the backstory. And that dumbs down the entire cross-section of news um, because everyone's on the internet. So then, you know, and this sort of maybe is a bit self-promotional, but I think the only way around that is to then regate things. And you see that with Twitter and all the social media, the censorious nature of it, I think is a kind of, it's these forces of segmentation trying to get back in there and sort of say, well, some things are too, you know, it's that old cliche of Jack Nicholson and, and a few good men, like you can't handle the truth, right? Um, so we're going to have to compartmentalize it. And Twitter is too broad a public forum to, to really allow for any kind of unconstrained discussion. But, you know, if you are prepared to pay and, you know, prove that you're a, uh, informed person in this particular field that, you know, in behind the little gates that we're now creating all these independent, you know, bloggers and, and independent media, they can, because they're speaking to their own audience again, it's the return of segmentation that allows for truth speaking. So I think the future of media is going to be, it's sort of this eternal cycle of like consolidation, fragmentation, and we're now fragmenting to resegment. To, to bring these segments back into the media so that we can tell the the truth but in a controlled way because the, the the broader population can't handle it so to speak that's the perception I think yeah and 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 I agree to to a lot of that and and I but I, I do think that unfortunately I think that I'm, I'm not so sure that media will ever be the same after covid frankly and uh, also because there are so many other things that we learned during COVID, such as how to control a crowd, as you rightly said. Um, and China obviously is doing that very effectively right now, uh, using mostly, uh, I think, technology that's developed in the Western world. Um, we saw even very close to home some pretty 
extraordinary measures, um, like in Austria with their uh, COVID policies. Um, we've seen now things happening in Canada in the last few months, which is, again, something that I don't think we would have seen five years ago, but now we have these extreme measures. So democracy is is changing, um, and I fear a little bit um, for the children that we um, have put into the world um, that that is more going to be like their, uh, the rules they're going to live under than, than the rules uh, we grew up under. And it just before you jumping in, Jim, here, and it leads me to a question which I haven't thought about much myself, so I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. We, we, often, we often talk about these kind of shifts in economics, um, you know, cycles, and, and, and obviously we talk about demographics as well. But shifting culture, for me, this is a shift in culture, if I can put it like that. And I wonder what a shift in culture like this actually does to economics, if I can put it like that. Um, do you have any, have you ever thought about uh, what the economic impact of a shift in culture like this um, can have? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, economics, I would say, is 90% of the stuff in economics everyone agrees on. And then there's 10% which is highly politicized and nobody agrees on, right? So it's it's the it's that 10% margin that like makes all the economists on Twitter hate each other, right? right. All the different schools. Um, and um, what I think, you know, with the, cult the culture wars, as they end up kind of being applied to the field of uh, economics, um, that 10% is kind of become increasingly polarized. And I, I think you see that already. Uh, to the point where <laughs> what were perceived as legitimate schools like neoliberalism or, or laissez-faire concepts are going to be seen as extreme, like almost I mean, it's already taboo to to say you are an Austrian uh, economist, right? Um, and I think that is not a good place for debate, for academia. I mean, whatever you think of the, you know, uh, <laughs> I am the sort of person who, who, who thinks there's a little bit of truth and a lot of and a little bit of wrong in absolutely all theories. Yeah, I like to analyze all of them. I, I, I always learn from all sorts of theories. I don't like to just completely close my eyes to, to an entire field. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not going to critique it. <laughs> um, but what, where that leaves us is in the sort of economics of a one, like just like with journalism, you ended up with one-sided journalism, you're going to end up with one-sided economics. Well, we've been in that situation before. The USSR is a very good example of one-sided economics. <laughs> and my mother, for example, um, she's now passed, so she won't mind me telling me telling you this. You know, she did a uh, an economics degree at the school of Eskeha, um, which is the Warsaw School of Economics, basically. Very illustrious organization uh, university these days and the equivalent of like the polish LSE, so, so to speak but she even though she had a master's in economics when she came to the uk in the 70s she did not use that on any of her credentials when she was looking um for a job because she was embarrassed because she thought people in the uk are just gonna think i have a joke degree because the economics i'm learning is is a one-sided economics it's marxist based it doesn't like accept free markets it doesn't accept any of the conventional doctrine and she would you know she, she basically said you know this is not a real economics degree like i i whatever. But um, what she found fascinating many years later is that all her fellow kind of uh, economists from that that year, 
they had no trouble using those credentials in the international sort of market, right? So you had this situation where people who'd been who had taught who'd been taught communist style economics ended up being accepted in the sort of international economic community as if they had learned like the broad brush economic space. And many of them will have probably adjusted and adapted and self-learned, you know, evolved their thinking. But a lot of the older guys won't have done so. And there's these massive knowledge gaps that appear, mainly because by the time you're in your 50s, you're not going to admit that you didn't learn the basics of, you know, DSG or whatever, because it wasn't like part of the um, syllabus in the, you know, in that system. So that's what I worry is that we will end up in this one-sided economics educational environment, um, which will make it not just taboo to think about free markets or um, like unconstrained. I'm not, I'm not saying I advocate unconstrained sort of neoliberalism, um, free markets, whatever. But I, I'm just saying I'm worried that that's totally off the table. And I don't think anything should ever be off the table because then that will impact the real world. And of course, where, where did, where did the thinking in communist Poland end up, you know, or USSI ended up in a system that, um, frankly self imploded because of the economic um, misallocation right so that's that's the risk i think yeah to to go down that path a little bit more you know i can't think i don't think we can talk about economics without talking about the fed a bit more um we've had one sided economics essentially for 40 years which is supply side monetary policy driven economics so it's been free market economics on steroids it's created a technological revolution, right? Um, it's created an infinite supply for capital. And that's actually been uh, a great thing for supply and, and but created a slightly deflationary environment, which led to more, you know, more of the same. That now I, I think has led to a lot of inequality, right? Over that 40 year period. I think that's pretty well established at this point. The question is, is that opening the door for more governmental you know, the other side now being overly dominant is the pendulum now going to swing too far the other way. I mean, I guess I'd love to hear your thoughts on where we are in terms of regime change, the Fed, monetary policy, et cetera. Well, I think that's exactly it. I think we went too far one way and then now we are sort of overcorrecting and going too far the other way. And um, but I'm, I'm also concerned that because in, in a perfect world, you get those undulations and, and one one keeps the other honest. Like that's the whole beauty of like having a an open um open debate situation or a free system where you can uh, regulate again. So actually a good comparison is, you know, shadow government, like uh, a shadow here in the UK obviously we have um we have the cabinet we have the cabinet, but we also have the shadow cabinet, right? Because that's how we 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 keep the core government accountable and there's a sort of un, you know alternative that's pushing back against it and offering different ideas we also had it with 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 covid we had sage which was like the policy making uh division in the government uh, the advisors uh, but we also had shadow shadow sage which actually ended up being even more extreme but that's the idea being that it's good to have a, this sort of undulation between one and the other and a devil's advocate for the uh, defense as well as for the, you know, the um, prosecution. So I think um, 
that's where we're going. The problem is that the undulation is swinging more and more uh, erratically and uh, more extremely. So whereas we used to be sort of uh, just, you know, if you think of it visually like you know undulating about a centimeters from a centimeter from one to the other we're now like in the meters you know so we're going from one on one extreme to the other extreme um and i worry that now um especially we will have this kind of um period where government um will become increasingly influential over money markets i've i've dubbed it especially specifically in with reference with reference to, to the us i've dubbed it sort of the end of the neutral dollar period um and of course that's a misnomer in some ways because it's not like the us was never uh, the dollar has always been political to some degree like it represents free markets a free system that's political right don't get me wrong um but those uh, and, and certainly the U.S. government has has always been an, a political beast, even in the 80s and 90s, whatever, and in the standoff with, with the USSR and, and the Cold War. But what I mean about the neutrality of the dollar is that there was a separate sort of ecosystem for the dollar as a as a medium of exchange, which was fairly neutral and totally depoliticized. And um, that was in the euro, euro dollar market and the offshore dollar, where really the dollar could be transacted, in, you know, by anyone. It was whether they were your like enemy of America, or, you know, friendly, friendly country to America or unfriendly country, it didn't really matter. In fact, to the contrary, we were quite happy if, say, the USSR um, started using the dollar as its second currency because we saw it as a sort of mechanism to infiltrate a closed system with an open uh, an open um, mechanism, right? So the dollar would then undermine all those capital controls and, and, and open the system up. And it did in many ways because absolutely every single corrupt official in the USSR had a dollar account in Switzerland, right? So that made them have an interest in, in, in opening um, themselves to the Western si system, right? So um, now we do, we're doing the exact opposite, which is that we don't want the dollar to be touched by anybody, even our enemies, and we're going to do our best to kind of completely uh, withhold access to it to the degree that in some ways it's now like it's with respect to the Russia-Ukraine crisis, it's Russia that is um, moving ahead with creating a, a more, you know, free uh, and transferable uh, medium of exchange, which is the ruble, because by s simply saying you have to hold rubles to be able to buy our oil, that opens up the um, the capital account because it's saying you know we want to sell you you know stuff for rubles, right? So this is quite contrary to um, you know I, f I find it a weird shift in in positions by the the us and 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 russia so and and i think that's indicative of the fact that we have learned that it there's more to a functional system than just a free market right we have to have principles and, and a level playing field and i actually do agree with that but i'm concerned that that level playing field and those principles are going to be pushed upon the system from the top down as opposed to, you know, I think um, a better mechanism is from the bottom 
up an organic system which is community-led where we create principled interactions based on common sort of community um, values right that's I think that would be preferable because as soon as you get the government telling you what your principles are supposed to be, that's not going to work. Um, and that's when you start to emulate actually the old systems of the USSR more so than than actually anything resembling a kind of uh, flourishing uh, free market system that is based on trust and, um, you know, a level playing field. Yeah, it's this great irony of of having to protect liberal democracy by force, right? Um, and those two tensions are very... Are I've very... termed it like, it, it's it's like illiberalism for to, for, mm-hmm. for liberalism. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> Do you think that, uh, you know, the seizure of dollar assets, et cetera, all the economic warfare that we're, that we're uh, you know, amidst right now, do you think it in any way leads to, I mean, this is the you know, $100 trillion question, leads to a decay in the exorbitant privilege of the dollar? Yeah, I, I certainly do. I think it's 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 um, you know unfortunately a much underappreciated point in the in policy policy circles. Actually, I think there's no doubt that if you want to be the sort of go to standard um, reserve standard for the world, you have to be neutral. You have to t- turn your eyes, you know, turn your head away from like bad bad practice because um, otherwise you won't you won't be able to be the, the the kind of the currency of commerce because commerce by itself, like you know, I'm a, I, I studied ancient history, so I look at a lot of things through through an in, ancient historical perspective. And at the end of the day, what is a trader, an international kind of privateer, or co- anyone involved in international commerce? It's somebody who who is just looking at the business side of of the equation. They just want to to look at two different systems of totally different political ideologies, like whether it's the Spartans and the Athenians or, you know, whoever, and they might not agree politically, but they have each of these different, you know, zones have their advantages and their disadvantages. The Athenians will need X and, and, and have too much of Y. And a trader, a person of commerce, can interact only they can become an intermediary, a common intermediary, only if they don't care about the politics of either side. They're just purely pragmatic and they can see an opportunity to make some money. But they need a neutral currency of exchange to be able to talk to all the other people interacting in in, in that sort of commercial space. They, it, It's the language of... You know, it, it comes from. I mean, I hate to say it, but it comes from like the the era of pirates and and privateers and sort of un, unshackled, you know, um, enterprise. Right? That's what people needed. And in those days, it was gold. It was it was usually some form of precious metal that was seen as totally apolitical. And that's why what that's why there was a preference for it. And that's not to say fiat currency was never used, but that wasn't the normal the normal common denominator between all the different zones. The dollar became that dollar uh, that 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 common denominator because precisely there was this amnesty or, or so so to speak, um a sort of um diplomatic immunity to who held the dollars. We didn't care. We would respect it. That's gone now, I think. I think it's not just gone because, not so much because of Russia, actually. I think the Afghanistan precedent was much bigger because that that was a direct um, confiscation, essentially. There is some legal, there is going to be some due 
process in terms of reallocating the Taliban money, but it's um, it's already set a precedent unlike any before where you have a central bank that is, uh, it can't trust that its foreign, de- foreign exchange deposits are going to be there um, when they need them. So yeah, I think that is um, quite significant. It's quite interesting when you sit there and you describe, you know, what is what is needed and this uh, kind of forum of neutrality and and kind of uh, the the um, what could a global quote unquote currency be? It reminds me of when I was uh, listening to uh, a panel that your friend Pippa Malmgren attended a few weeks ago at the government summit in Dubai and she was sitting next to uh, or she was at a panel with uh, I think the Saudi um, oil minister and, and and what you described in terms of not getting involved in these kind of politics was exactly how he described OPEC. As soon as they walk into that room, even if Russia is part of it, it doesn't enter the the, the Ukraine situation does not enter into their discussion and even Iran and Iraq uh, and and Saudi, you know, they are enemies. They throw drones at, at each other, um, but they're still when they go into that OPEC meeting, that doesn't, that's not part of the conversation. Very interesting to make those parallels, actually. Yeah, you need a neutral common ground. Like that is the first yeah. rule of diplomacy, right? You need you need to be, you know, a diplomat is is supposed to, you know, have this common respect for all the other diplomats. I mean, that's that's the first rule of diplomacy. If we lose that, and I fear we will, um, that that is going to be problematic. Um, uh, and I, and I, I think even in, you know, the Cold War, there were trade channels that were open. Um, it's not like all trade was completely killed off between the USSR and, and America and the West. And I think... Um, there was always a practical underbelly to it, but it wasn't, you know, that, that's a good example of the sort of thing that couldn't really happen these days because of the internet. If if there was a bit of like discrete, you know, state to state trade because of essential goods that are needed, you know, an essential swap of goods, right? That is to the benefit of both countries. Um, that would leak into the popular press and become too controversial. Therefore, I suspect that even those sort of that that sort of real politic becomes much harder to uh, enforce in a um, in the current situation. Sure, and you could of course argue that in around 1973, 74, um, perhaps uh, encouraged by Kissinger, um, that oil became the de facto backing uh, or how to back the US dollar um, rather than gold, which obviously um, it had stopped being uh, a couple of years earlier. I just want to throw in one thing because we were talking a little bit about the, kind of the the Russian the Ukrainian situation, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on this. Um, at least in the media, it's often presented as you know Russia having uh, you know a very weak uh, economic uh, or economy as 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 a resp- as a result of all the the sanctions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's kind of how I feel that it's being positioned. On the other hand, if you think about uh, and in terms of also in terms of the West having all the leverage, but if I'm thinking about all the things that the Western world has decided to do 
in kind of a U-turn uh, in terms of policies in the last six, seven weeks and what it means in terms of costs for the Western world, in terms of further emergency packages uh, on top of all the COVID uh, stuff we did. Um, it does seem to me like, uh, and also rise, the, 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 the rising interest rates and rising inflation, it does seem to me that the West could actually be in, in 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 not as advantageous situation as you would think. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts and that's kind of quote unquote power balance in terms of Western economics and and the Russian economy right now, uh, given what you're seeing and hearing uh, from your sources. Oh, I um I completely agree, and I think um I think it's really um undemocratic what we're doing actually because I don't think we're consulting our own population on what will be quite horrific um, consequences if we go through with this policy um, you know during the oil embargo in 19 uh, in the 1970s Nixon actually um, was hoping to get the American population on side. There's this incredible video of him sort of um, speaking to the American people and saying, you know, uh, because of X, Y, or Z, uh, we're going to have to really sacrifice. We're going to have to have no driving on Sundays and, we, you know, we might face shortages and this and that. And there was this quiet hope that the American population would um, get on side, right? But in the end, that didn't last very long. And uh, we effectively, you know, America effectively capitulated and, and OPEC became the established norm and, and this massive transfer of power and wealth happened in terms of Saudi Arabia specifically. Um, we transferred all this power to to, to, to the uh, Middle East, right? Um So I think in this situation, it is sort of a self-made uh, embargo, right? So it's not at the hands of a third party. We are, well, it is, obviously, if indirectly it is. But we are the ones that are pushing the embargo on ourselves, which will make it hard to enforce. Um, now, theoretically, that will make it harder to enforce in the black markets, so to speak. And there's already news about, you know, how lots of ships are loading Russian cargoes, but being very discreet about their identifiers. And, you know, so there's already like a push towards that. The problem is in this day and age of hyper transparency, how long can those sort of underhanded sort of mechanisms survive? Um, I think it'll be a bit like with COVID, where we're going to be very hysterical about any kind of breaking of the sanctions for the next year or so. Then there'll be the direct impact on our quality of life that comes with it. And then slowly we'll just pretend like when, when say the black marketeers or some countries, uh, some companies decide to take a bit of uh, a risk and trade trade or accept Russian cargoes, we'll start turning a blind eye to it because we will get sort of uh, sanction fatigue eventually. That's my very cynical uh, take on the sanctions. I think they'll last, you know, we'll do this big virtue signal, they'll they'll work, then then our own populations will really suffer, we'll see shortages, the, the, the electorate will not get behind it, people will start losing elections unless some I mean it could be that like you know when you look at sort of France you know there isn't really an alternative that is 
digestible so macron gets to stay no matter what because um the alternatives are not really acceptable so maybe you know maybe the electorate won't have an option to vote its way out of sanctions but but i do think there will be a sort of reticence once once the real impact and the real impact is going to be massive because even though russia has uh russia is obviously not as as significant as any of the the G7 in 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 its GDP, the key point is that it is one of the top exporters of commodities and um, and food and and wheat products in the world, and it doesn't you know the equity and the and the treasury markets and the bond markets like to say oh well commodities are just tiny relative to the rest of the financial um market but what they neglect is that commodities are the input they are the, the they are the core sort of life they're not the lifeblood they're the, the oxygen in the lifeblood right so the lifeblood is all the other stuff it's like the equities the bonds you know all the all the kind of financial complex you know securities that we have um but commodities are the oxygen that that the system needs to carry around itself to ensure the other stuff flows, right? And if you remove the oxygen, it doesn't take very long for um, the entire lifeblood and the, the entity itself to, to essentially die. So that's the metaphor that I'm using. But um, I think we have really underestimated. It's not, not the numerical kind of financial dollar value of of the commodities that matters um it's it's how they interact with the rest of the financial system they are literally at the key input it's out of commodities that all the other stuff you know in the in the system is made and and depends on so so i i yeah yeah that's my view (laughs) absolutely absolutely. it reminds me of a quote i heard i don't know who came up with it but someone uh, i think just said that you know the americans are ready to fight the russians until the last europeans and uh, we'll probably be the ones who who feels the pressure first jim where do you want to go now um is is an interesting thread to pull on here um there's a lot that many that argue that one of the most important things that's happened the last 20 years is the shale revolution in the United States and the energy independence that's happened in America. Um, that energy independence has freed America from dependence um, you know, itself, not Europe, obviously, and not Western liberal democracy, but it's what's um, allowed the US to step away from the world stage in many ways and uh, become a little bit more egocentric. Um, and so, you know, I, it is also what you can argue continues to make dollar dominance um, kind of, I don't want to say indisputable, but you know, from a practical standpoint, there are very few countries that have everything, right? That don't have negative democratic, demographic trends, that have the commodities, right, um, et cetera. And that underpins still dollar strength, uh, never mind rule of law, et cetera. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, on the shift in commodities, particularly to the US's role and also uh, again, uh, just to be polemical, if you think the practical realities of of America and and what underpins the dollar ultimately are also are strong enough to to counteract the moral high ground we're giving up uh, in your in your thoughts. Well, it's an interesting point you make. I do see what you're saying, and I do think that certainly shale and energy independence does does make uh, America um, it, a more independent and I isolation prone entity that said um you know 
in terms of the politics, in terms of the sort of push from government circles to interfere, not interfere, but sort of influence the politics of, of, you know, outsider countries, I I think that remains like the neocon sort of perspective on the world that we have to sort of export democracy and freedom. I don't, I don't think that's gone away. Um, The question is whether the world is going to be as receptive to those messages without any, uh, with, with an isolationist America, because you can kind of um, see where, um, you know, in, in an interdependent world, how and why it makes sense for America to export democracy with, you know, to its trading partners and people who are trading with America want to like, you know, operate on the same standards. All of this encourages a dollar standard, right? Because that's the underpinning force for the dollar standard. It's the trade with your with your counterparts and your trading partners. But if you're becoming more and more isolationist, that goes away. And so I think by definition, an isolationist America undermines the dollar. Even if it strengthens it in theory, because America is strong, that's not what makes the dollar standard. The dollar standard is as much a function of you know, how happy people are to accept it for trade and exchange, which has to be a function of neutrality and the fact that, you know, even the enemies of America are going to use the dollar, right? Um, And a function of, of a continuous flow of dollars from America abroad, which if it becomes isolationist and doesn't have to trade with anyone, well, that flow extinguishes itself, right? So the petrodollar, which was one of the main throughputs for like dollars into the international system, that dies um, and that undermines the the kind of sheer volume of dollars circulating through the offshore system and will naturally undermine um, how much of a presence it has in international reserves. So I think there's a paradox in that in that situation. And of course, if you think about, you know, how America came to um, to be the, you know, flag bearer uh, of the dollar standard or whatever, um, it came through losing its independence. Like it, it came through <laughs> effectively dropping its isolationist attitude and joining a war, right? It, it came as a product of lend-lease. It came as a product of showing to Europe that it was prepared to invest in Europe after the war as well and not worry about the consequences of whether it will get repaid. That was not an isolationist perspective. And that those are the foundations that brought us the dollar standard, right? So we are literally reversing those. So I don't see... That's why I'm a bit more skeptical of those who are saying oh no no the dollar's never gonna like you know this is all rubbish about the decline of the dollar um i don't think it's a decline of the dollar per se within america or whatever but on the international trading circuit i do think we're going to a multipolar well that's not to say the yuan or the ruble or bitcoin's going to be better than the dollar i just think we lose that neutral clearing point altogether which will add cost and um, to, to transactions and just general commerce overall, because traders, if they lack a common ground, they're going to have to add a premium for the risk of, of not knowing like the, the common cost of everything, right? So that that 
naturally is going to impact inflation. So I that that's that's my view of it. I don't I don't think a multipolar world is a is a world where inflation is kept in check. I think a multipolar world is one where there is continuous sort of bouts of, bouts of shortages and and um, imbalances in the market that feed inflation because um, you can't get that common valuation um, the way you would do. You have to continuously kind of create these big arbitrage opportunities to incentivize um, the traders to come in and take the risk. Yeah. To, to use your analogy uh, from your blog of the British Royal Navy underpinning kind of, um, you know, the the strength of commerce uh, and empire in in, uh, in Britain, isn't it ultimately, and, and you just spoke to kind of the, the, the dollar dominance coming out of World War II, isn't it really ultimately though power that, that uh, and strength um, and, you know, creating order in a sense, um, that power that ultimately led to that, to that strength in all those environments. I mean, in a way, the strength is more important during times of bifurcation, uh, during times of instability. Um, people are looking for kind of a, a bigger, sturdier ship or, or who's that Navy that's strongest that's going to protect our assets and allow for things to occur. I don't know. Again, being, being polemical here, I guess. Uh, there are two sides to every story. No, I, th so. I think you're right. I mean, I think it's ultimately strength matters, but um, and certainly the you know the the American NATO military complex is is second to none at the moment, and and is likely to stay that way. But that doesn't mean I think in in an isolationist world, right? You can have the biggest army in the world, but if you're not prepared to use it, it's, it's kind of meaningless, and that's. That's what we learned from the Second World War was that you needed, we needed to like break America's isolationist attitude to to um, to get it to act at all, right? So, and and actually, it's quite it's quite a funny story with respect to how the British, you know, the the, the role that fake news played in that um, in that entire episode because it was the Secret Service, the UK Secret Service, that apparently came up with a fake map of South America and like some fake plans about how Hitler was planning to invade South America that ended up um, pushing, uh, well, at least persuading FDR that, 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 yeah, I think, yeah, it was a, it was a South America plan that um, ended up helping, uh, as well as obviously Pearl Harbor. But in, in, in the end, it was a lot of skullduggery that, like, ended up pushing uh, America into the war as well, for noble reasons, don't get me wrong. But, like, it, it, it was, we had to work hard to do that, right? So in a... Power, yes, absolutely. We retain the power, but unless we're prepared to use it, and at the moment we are kind of, well, we're, we're pushing aside the kind of raw power of it and, and f focusing more on the economic warfare. Um, but the economic warfare can only go so far and eventually um, you're going to starve starve a system out and i think the you know when you look at the second world war you look at the um role that oil and acquisition of commodities played in in um in that in that war it, i i think you've got nato and you've got power but do you have the commodities and the rare resources that are needed to continuously power that um, military that's the bigger question and yes um i'm sure America's self-sufficiency will help, 
but it doesn't have self-sufficiency on a lot of rare uh, materials and resources that are also very necessary to maintain that dominance. One of which is sort of a lot of materials that are used in nuclear generation and in nuclear ballistic, well, in ballistic missiles more generally. There are a lot of commodities that the Western system is is lacking actually relative to Russia, and they might not, you know, we might, we haven't necessarily heard that much about, say, the shortages in noble gases like helium or neon, all of which are essential in the making of, you know, semiconductors and um, ballistic missiles, in rocket launching, all this, all these other kind of exotic technologies that are needed to maintain the military industrial complex. So one hopes innovation, you know, necessity uh, is the mother of invention. So perhaps there is a workaround and certainly there was nothing like a world war to, uh, you know, incentivize innovation um, that, you know, think of what came out of the second world war. But um, at the moment, I'm not sure it's as clear cut, clear cut as, as perhaps the market is assuming. You talked about deglobalization. I know we have to sort of start winding down. We've been, we don't want to keep you all afternoon, even though we would love to do, but uh, we'll respect your time, of course. But um, you talked about deglobalization. I, I just wanted to ask you one thing, um, because I'm sure this is an aspect of the financial world you've been following and writing about as well. And that is because Peter Zion, our previous guest, talked about, well, we actually have to kind of play the whole the, the whole game we've had, or not game, but the, the way things has evolved in the last 30, 40 years, we now have to start playing that in reverse. So my question is, in a deglobalizing world, what does that impact, do you think, on things like passive investing and index funds, which have been kind of in our world, um, you know, very dominant trend, so to speak, uh, in the last 10, 15 um, years? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure... Index investing <clears throat> is going to um, suffer from deglobalization in, in and of itself. It really depends on, you know, index investing is now more influenced by factors like ESG. If ESG um, kind of extends itself to ESGA, as I've been saying, so, you know, adding A for ally, that limits, you know, where investors, you know, passive, where, where retail investors, all sorts of investors can put their money. Um, it should, in theory, create a bifurcation where we've already seen it with like the Russian ETFs, etc. kind of um, uh, obviously falling out of favor and, and suffering massive outflows relative to, um, you know, that money has to go somewhere, right? So, I think I, d I don't see an immediate sort of impact other than, um, you know, winners and losers based on how, you know, obviously, if you've got a ETF that is focused on uh, global growth in some way, that's not going to do well. But say the kind of domestic, you know, giant tech companies, whatever, that that will continue to do probably quite well. So I... Um, I think you just it, 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 again, it's it's about s selectivity um, and picking. Maybe stock picking will make a comeback because you'll have to pick the companies that are more effective at, at sort of reshoring or friendshoring, as as Janet Yellen has called it. Um, but the overall 
effect on index funds. I think it's it's going to just be through the price level, isn't it? It's going to be through whether the equity prices in general uh, are going to keep up with inflation. And certainly one thing to bear in mind is that equity markets, wherever there has been like uncontrolled inflation, they're very favorable environments because where else do you put your money? I mean, you, you, you actually don't, in, you know, my view is that you, you don't want to buy debt securities as much as you want to buy equity because you want to invest in in real in real companies and 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 you know essentially anything that can um, hedge your inflation risk so that 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 would be my instinct but i haven't thought about it enough to be no 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 that, that that's completely fair uh, and i do like your 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 um your reference to esg and I would also have thought that some of the things, and I don't want to sound too political here, but just some of the things we're seeing in China right now, I do, I do think that the G must be in trouble um, simply, and, and yet we don't really see a lot of uh, funds, uh, or we still see a lot of funds actually being raised for, for Chinese uh, well, I think adventures. There's, there's but I've one thing that might come myself. about is that there is this fundamental um clash between the E and the S and the G, right? And one of the best right. examples of that is sort of the solar market where, um, you know, you will want to invest in solar companies because it's E, but what if those solar panels are being made by slave labor um, in, you know, by Uyghurs, right? Then that compromises on on, on the S and, and, and to some degree on the G as well. So which... Um, you know, which one of those is going to be more important, right? So I think the bundling of ESG together, and some might say, you know, the A falls under G anyway, but um, I think that might face a reckoning. I think there might have to be a, a rethink in terms of what qualifies. Are we going to be more, more focused on the E, uh, in which case it shouldn't really matter whether it's an enemy state, so to speak, that's making your solar panels or whatever. At any cost, even slave labor is okay. <laughs> you know, that's the mentality. Or it's the wider bucket of things like, yes, you know, we, we, we're worried about climate, but we're, we'd rather like maintain core values and not exploit people, blah, blah, blah. But that is a luxury, right? So it's either it's either we, we are... Uh, principled or we are um, in a sort of save the environment at all cost kind of situation because the E I think is fundamentally uh, in some ways an ends justifies the means mentality right I mean that's an astute point I mean um, you know to to continue on that a little bit you know if you look at what's happening in Europe right now with the energy crisis um Many, many people are pointing to ESG investment over the last decade, right, as a major driver of the energy crisis that we're seeing in Europe. Many argue that it's unsustainable, and many argue that Russia's feeling of it being emboldened, um, you know, and the actions that are happening now in terms of bifurcation are ultimately, and for many reasons, because of a lot of that energy policy. Um, so speaking directly to kind of how these two things can be diametrically opposed, um, how much of that do you agree with? And 
What do you think, think the path forward is in terms of energy policy? No, I, I totally agree with that. I think uh, <clears throat> I think we have been very uh, naive in, with our energy policy. I think our net zero uh, entire like entire framing of net zero is completely naive and. Uh, the architects of that policy obviously know nothing about um, basic supply and demand and, and environment and economic stability. I, ju- I just, I'm actually quite sh- appalled by what's what's happened on that front. It was always clear to me that the um, transition has to be funded, so to speak, by by a interim period of nat gas. Um, consumption where nat gas becomes increasingly the dominant fuel because that base load um only nat gas only a fossil fuel can really sustain the base load requirements that our system needs renewables are just the technology just isn't there in fact the other day i was listening i don't know which minister it was or some sort of um uh, industry uh, lobbyist whatever speaking on the radio and when pushed on the on the on these exact points you know the only thing that she could come back with was well you know hopefully in 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 a few years we'll have the technology I was like well that's that's just you can't it's like jumping out of an airplane and knitting your parachute on the way down that is not a way to manage these things um and and if we are going to be humanitarian about it you know what is worse a nuclear crisis or nuclear war or climate change i mean both of them are existent existential risks right so you have to you've got to kind of like um balance out well i guess you have to grade your different existential risks and at least you know the only i'm a bit more concerned about nuclear war than i am about environmental um sort of climate change um not to say i'm not concerned about climate change i am very much i'm very concerned about pollution as well but I think you have to be realistic. And the nat gas situation is just an absolute shocking shock, shock horror because it was clear, always clear that we would have to have this interim period. And I don't know what they were thinking. And in the UK specifically, they, they, um, they cut out um, all our storage. So that means the big facilities we had for, for, for allowing uh, nat gas to be accumulated in the summer to bridge the imbalances over the winter. That that was gone. The idea was that we could depend on international LNG markets instead. Well, this is very equivalent to sort of the financial sort of system, the wholesale markets idea of that, that brought down Northern Rock, right? It was the idea was that you didn't need to have your own, you know, long term secure funding. You could just get it from the market if you really needed it. And, and then the markets just closed up and there was none, none there. Um, to get right so that this is equivalent in the nat gas field it was it was just not going to it was not a very prudent approach um and then on top of that we have underinvested in in nat gas development we've underinvested in the assets that we have whether it's the north sea or uh shale gas in in the us and i think um, obviously, that was always going to give the countries that don't care about climate change but care more about power and an, an, a mechanism by which to gain international leverage. And, and that's exactly what's happened. And, and Putin was no doubt, I mean, in my mind, it seems obvious that he probably was very happy to see all these environmental movements or even fund some of these environmental movements because 
it was clearly going to work in his favor in the long run because we would we would become less resilient to the possibility of removing our ourselves from the energy from dependence on Russia. So I don't buy also this idea that we this accelerates our move to renewables renewables because that is the other thing you hear a lot and um and frankly I think that's very naive because well, if it does, it maybe it will happen in the long run. Like I said, necessity is the mother of, of invention. But what will be the collateral damage in the in the interim? And I'm very concerned about this winter. I'm even more concerned about the winter afterwards, because you know a shortage of energy to heat people's homes leads to to actual death as well. So um, yeah, I, I I'm a bit worried. I do agree with the with the general perspective though that this was us shooting ourselves in in the foot and and we haven't even discussed germany which was um even more on i mean to to shut down its nuclear power generation this year yeah the nuclear the nuclear threat is what i wanted to pull on it seems like we do have a solution i mean the solution is you need time now to wind it back up but you know the big question to me is uh, to your point of you know nuclear war you know what are your uh you know or environment what do you choose well how about nuclear power as a solution to nuclear war, right? Um, I mean, it seems like, uh, the, particularly in Germany, obviously France gets the majority of its power from from nuclear. But um, it's always fascinating to me that in Europe, it doesn't have the natural resources. That we're, there's such an unwillingness to make that uh, investment in nuclear power and, and the move away from it, given you know it's it's twice as uh, you know, cost a bit, you know, effective than even carbon-based uh, resources. So, I don't know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on 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 nuclear, and if you think there's going to be a nuclear renaissance. Given it seems to be the one kind of breaker that you know, other than coming up with new technologies or faster ways of doing it. And if we're talking about going to Mars, I think we can control the potential fears and fallout of, of nuclear reactors. And um, well, if we anyway, can control, I mean. Exactly. Like, if we can control a virus with lockdown, which we can't, obviously, that's been proven. Um, why? we? It's very unlikely that we can constrain climate change immediately with a policy of cold turkey, um, fossil fuel kind of elimination. I, I just, it, it's the same mentality of this sort of um, incredibly... Um, blunt mechanism to deal with an Im- imminent crisis, but r- not at all for- thought through in the longer run. We need more subtle measures, ones that create incentives, not just uh, you know carrots as well as sticks, so to speak. On nuclear, there is a lot of innovation. Like let's not because nuclear was so um, you know unpopular for so long because of Chernobyl, because of. Uh, Fukushima, etc., um, and the one in America, Three Mile, I think it was Three Mile, yeah. Three um, Mile Island, yeah. The Island. there hasn't been that much innovation in that space, uh, but now finally we've got a lot of innovation. There's a lot of interesting and encouraging technology in the sort of micro nuclear generation uh, field, or in in the battery kind of model where you don't necessarily have to have a reactor um, that operates in in the in the in the classical sense so there is no uh, risk of meltdown because these um, new power generation mechanisms effectively 
um, charge down. They don't um, they don't create um, the same. Well, I'm, I'm not I'm not in any shape or form a nuclear physicist, but from what I understand, the the con- the, the risk of nuclear <laughs> meltdown is m- just not there. Um, so these are all really interesting technologies which were sidelined for unknown reasons. I think we, it's absolutely incredible crazy that we haven't been looking at these in in a more sensible way um and it seems again to be mostly ideological because it's so connected to sort of the anti-war and anti-nuclear proliferation um you know movement in general um and there is this concern that you know nuclear is a very um you know, elitist, not elitist, but it's, it's like a Western, non-developing country friendly uh, technology because we would never trust developing countries to have nuclear plants or whatever. But I think um, I think that is um, we have to get we have to find ways around those problems. And and certainly um, there is enough potential now to generate different different sort of designs in, in nuclear power plants to to merit further investigation. And certainly those countries that, you know, don't have consistent sunshine or wind, um, it makes a lot of sense to look at nuclear for those countries. Maybe that's the blind spot. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I'm, I'm very much pro-nuclear, but, but like the conventional plants, unfortunately, take like up to 10 years to, to make. Um, so that's a long time, you know, to, to get all the permits. I mean, there, there can be a little bit of acceleration in terms of the bureaucracy of it. But in, you know, just basic development and not in my backyard mentality has to be over um, overcome for these plants to be built in the first place as well. It's it's just an interesting, it's a really interesting topic. And actually, uh, Gem and I are going to dive into natural resources and, and energy in a full episode um, coming up uh, very shortly as well. And I think it's going to be a topic we're going to be talking about for a very long time. As a Dane, I'm, although I live in Switzerland, as a Dane growing up in Denmark as a kid, I always found it very interesting that the Danish anti-nuclear movement was very, very strong. Yet we ended up having a nuclear plant 15 miles from the capital of Copenhagen, but because it was in Sweden. So, I mean, completely crazy uh, policies. And of course, you're right. It takes about 10 years to build these plants. And of course, we would expect our our policymakers to be ahead of time thinking about what we were going to be needing in 10 years time. And and now we find ourselves in this uh, crazy situation. I have two uh, small questions left so that we don't take up all of your time uh, this afternoon, Izzy. You said earlier on that you were fearing um, the winter coming and maybe the the next winter coming. And I was just sort of curious, are you a little bit of a prepper? Uh, Because that seems to be coming a term now, um, mainly in the US, but I think even in Europe now, we heard a Danish podcast this morning about prepping and I thought wow I've never come across that I I laugh Um, I am I am I guess Um, I'm definitely uh, the sort of person who plans for all eventualities so I like to like when I go anywhere I like to figure out an escape plan and um, I always like to hedge myself with respect to kind of you know if I can't you know if this doesn't go this way then maybe I have a contingency here and there right so I'm big into contingencies I'm not necessarily convinced that I'll have to use them but I I am a prepper in the sense of you know 
wanting to have those things just just in case. Um, I I don't I don't. But at the same time, I have to say that the my rational head, like that's very much my irrational kind of like animalistic ah panic fear ah. Um, but my rational head always concludes that in an actual crisis. All those prepping, all that prepping, is likely to be um, useless bec- unless it happens on a social level. Because in a real crisis, what really gets you through it is the networks that you have and the access to the next networks and and your your standing within those networks, right? So if you have a good reputation, if people can trust you, if you know like four or five doctors, you know, uh, you know, if you people who can make, you know, you need to know the right people with the right skills. It's the network that's going to help you, not um, not your own individual kind of uh, Scrooge McDucky sort of attitude because there's just no way, no matter how well prepped you are, you're going to like last maximum a month, right? Two months by yourself. So if you want to like, if you want to look beyond the crisis, you have to look towards the networks that you're going to build. And I think the billionaires, like when you read about all these billionaires prepping and buying like, you know, land in New Zealand or whatever, just in case the worst comes, you know, they've realized that like in that crisis situation that their billions are meaningless. Like they can have the best sort of underground base or whatever. But if if there's no network if there's no you know how are you going to pay your little army that's going to protect you and your wealth like at the end of the day it all goes a bit mad max so you need to have more of a um a a social community-based approach to these things and i would call it more like a like a like a fire drill you need to have a plan for how you know if, if governments were really smart they would be helping us establish these networks you know very much like the programming we saw you know during cold war during the cold war and you know that was in the first instance people focused on surviving the nuclear attack but then also kind of how you would operate in in a in a severely impacted environment right so i think that's the sort of stuff we should be learning at school i think that that would be really really good sort of worthwhile practical survival skills but how you interact and form you know and in in a way i think kids are maybe learning this but not through school but through video games that's my thesis right oh yeah absolutely actually i thought in the uk you had some <laughs> no. Prep school, <laughs> no, not not quite. i imagine okay fair enough now we're gonna end this now but just before you leave there were so many things uh, we could have asked you and we haven't even gotten through probably half our questions so i just want to ask you whether there was something we missed that you really wanted have to have brought up and uh to give you a chance to uh to bring no, it up I, th- I think we we've out. um i think we've covered everything um i mean obviously the big topic du jour is elon musk taking over twitter that um Exactly. Yeah, that could be one no, we missed. I mean, well, it, we didn't miss it. It's fascinating it. to watch, it and I just, I just find list, it yeah. very interesting that um, it's such a polarizing topic. Um, and my own perspective is that I don't think I, I, I'm not a free speech absolutist at all. I'm actually what I would call a free speech maximizer, which means I, I think there are fair enough limits. I think we should have like libel, and I think you know incitement to violence and and, and really bad stuff like that should not should not be allowed um 
But I, I wonder if whether the system will be able to kind of... I, I, I suspect that Elon, once he takes over, if he takes over Twitter, um, he will learn the hard way um, that some of these systems are thrust upon you, not because I don't think, you know, Jack Dorsey or whoever you know, had, a, had any intention of creating a censorious environment on Twitter. I think these are sort of natural forces that are thrust upon social systems. Um, just feeding back to my original point about segmentation, it's because the market can't handle the truth very often. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if, 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 you know, if Elon Musk can actually change any of that, um, I, I, I do. I'm, I'm curious. I will be watching with a lot of curiosity. I think there are many people that will be watching with a lot of curiosity. Izzy, this has been a tremendous conversation with so much knowledge shared from your experience. Thank you so much for doing this today. And by the way, make sure to follow and subscribe to Izzy's work over at The Blind Spot. You can, of course, find the links in the show notes for today's episode. And as you can tell from today's conversation, we're living in a true global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jim and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode of the Global Macro Series. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.